How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily podcast on the New York Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my city and wide. Yeah, let me take my time. I'm on my grind. Gotta make sure that we shine. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. HR to the death and first always my team for sure. Go roll. Can't fall off. Got a family support. Gotta make sure we succeed and reach our dream. Now live through me. I'm about to take off. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Knicks podcast. This is episode 47. I am your host, Jared Dubin. Today we will be doing our 2016-17 season preview with the great Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal. We are recording this in the very early hours of Monday morning, which means that by the time you're listening to this, the season will be starting tomorrow. And that's really exciting stuff. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. How's everything going? Everything is good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to watching some real basketball as opposed to, you know, the stuff that we had to watch for the last couple weeks. Uh, yeah, I, I obviously am too. And the way you phrase that, it's funny because, you know, you normally want some level of intrigue uh, for each season when you start. And, you know, it's just hard to believe that Cleveland won the final Year and did it in the fashion they did. And, like, they're not even close to really being a favorite this year just because of what happened with Golden State. And it leaves me wondering for all this preparation these teams are going to, you know, put together. If Golden State, if you took Golden State's preseason effort and kind of like the talent that they have just from preseason, how many games could they win with like the way they played in preseason and kind of how loosely they played? They, you, they clearly be a playoff team anyway. And it makes me wonder how well they would do if you just took this and they never got any better. They don't have the chemistry yet, but I still think that they'd probably be pretty good against most teams' regular season cohesion, effort, talent. Um, you know, it's just going to be a crazy year, but I, I can't imagine Golden State not being, you know, the team everybody's chasing at the end of it. Yeah, I've talked about it with some some other people. Like I went on uh, our friend Tim Bontemps' podcast. He does he has his podcast for the Washington Post, and uh, we were doing over unders for the season. And Golden State was something like sixty six and a half or something like that. And like it's it's somewhat tempting to go under because you don't think they're going to try to win as many games as they did last year. But you know you watch even like a few minute stretches of their preseason games and just look at all the talent that's there. And it sort of seems like they could walk into 67-plus wins sort of by accident. It's like that there's just so much going on there that it's so tough to, for anybody to deal with. That It's just hard to imagine that they're going to win six, seven fewer games than they did last year. Right, like yes, who's beating them hard, 15, 16 times? Last year. Right, and like even if these guys only play, like let's say they sit them all down for seven, eight games apiece, 
Like, okay, so you play seven games without Draymond, seven games without Steph, seven games without KD, seven games without Clay. Like, as long as those aren't in the same game, like, they're still coming into that game a heavy favorite in all likelihood. Like, is there going to be a game all season where they're not favored? Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe, again, maybe if someone, if, if it's like advanced knowledge of the fact that someone's not playing or that a couple guys aren't playing or if someone's hurt, right. sure. You know, Cleveland, maybe um, San Antonio, if, if they're going to start the season 40-0 and at home or 39-0 and at home, maybe, if they're playing on the road, but um, not many. You know, there aren't going to be more than five games, I would think, that, that they're not favoring. Yeah, it's... I know that there's been a lot of complaining about the sort of inevitability of everything. You know, pretty much anybody you talk to will tell you that the Cavs and the, and the Warriors are going to meet in the finals again. Three straight years, it's never happened. Um, a lot of people would like to see some more unpredictability going on. You know, there's there's obviously unpredictability that happens every year, whether it's injuries or somebody just getting upset but it does seem like this is the year with the least amount of unpredictability ever, and and I can see that getting that weighing on people. Um, for me, I, I kind of enjoy the ride, though. Like, I like seeing basketball elevated to sort of like a higher level. Like, I was endlessly fascinated by the Warriors last season, um, not just like chasing 73 games, but also like the way they played and the way that it was sort of like nobody could deal with them on either side of the court for some of these games and it was just like they were playing a completely different game than whoever was on the floor with them um, that kind of thing fascinates me and uh, I know that's not necessarily a majority opinion but I feel like we could see it taken to even another level this year which is just crazy to think about yeah I mean I, I think well when, when you think about it, it it probably depends on the fan you know uh, younger fans may not really have uh, a, a comparable situation to this, you know, we, we had the Bulls to look at years and years ago, um, and the Warriors. You know, it was interesting. I, I was fascinated by seeing them challenged and pushed, and sometimes it kind of felt as if they weren't in those situations until you know they're down eight with three minutes left, and then to make a push to come back and win those sorts of games, or you know, a situation where they have a back to back where they're, they're challenged or something like that. And then, obviously, during the finals, that was what made the finals so hard to believe, is that the whole season they were always able to kind of answer whatever challenge they had in front of them. And then when they got pushed in the finals, they, they finally couldn't. So I found that interesting. I, I can't say that I find it interesting when they go in and, and blow the doors off every team they play. And that's kind of what I'm afraid of this year, is that after the first couple months when they've really developed chemistry, it's just hard to see how they don't, run through certain teams completely um, they did that last year and when you make them so much better with, with one of the best players in the game it's just hard to see how they're going to be challenged from night to night um, unless they're playing another really 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 good team yeah I mean everyone is sort of is obviously I think fascinated by seeing great teams pushed into corners and whether or not they can come back things like that I know I'm definitely in the minority in terms of uh, enjoying seeing somebody blow the doors off another team uh depending on the way on the way they're doing it like it's it's one thing if you know it's one one team just can't 
execute and they're just like not in the same league but it's another thing i think to do what the warriors did last year where it was just like all out the best execution and best shooting and best like swarming level defense that you could imagine like to it's different i think when one team is in struggle city than it is when one team is like elevating things to a completely different level uh, at least for me um Let's, let's move on to the Knicks, though, because that's why we're here. Uh, before we do that, just a quick word from the sponsor right here. This episode of the Lockdown Knicks podcast is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is better than whatever underwear you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I went to the Mack Weldon website, ordered some stuff. I got several pairs of underwear, a couple pairs of socks, a shirt, hoodie, it was so easy. I mean, I ordered it, and it was literally at my apartment the next day, which is always great when you consider how long things often take when you order stuff online. So I was very appreciative of that. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirt, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants that you will ever wear. They also have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Mack Weldon also wants you to be comfortable so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going on dates, everyday life. I wear it to the gym all the time. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code LONIX. That's MacWeldon.com, and you can get 20% off by using the promo code LONIX. Knicks. All right. Well, let's, uh, I, Chris, I have five questions written down that I think are ranging from somewhere to kind of important to very important that I think if we discuss all of them will give us a pretty holistic view of, you know, what the Knicks are going to be like this season, what's important to them, and uh, where they're going to fit into the hierarchy of the league. Uh, I want to start with who is the non-Carmelo player that they can least afford to get injured and miss extended time? Um, okay. Well, last year it was obviously Lance Thomas, and I don't know that anybody would have guessed that. Um, I, I'm not totally sure he's that person. I would say he might still be that person this year because of the fact that he's got more versatility than anybody on their defense. Um, so Lance is obviously number one and number two. The other person that I'm going to say, and I can't believe I'm saying this based on how he played statistically this preseason, I guess I'll say Jennings, because the truth is um, if Jennings goes down, which he's obviously an injury risk after the Achilles injury he suffered, if he goes down, does it force them to play Rose more than they want to? And then if that happens, then, you know, you potentially lose two guys at the same time between Jennings and Rose because Jennings would be out and then Rose, you know, it's kind of the same phenomenon you had in 2012-13 where, you know, the Knicks kept saying repeatedly, oh, we're not worried about the old guys because this team is built around three young guys in Mello, Tyson, and Amari. But then when all the old guys went down in one time or another with Sheed and Marcus Camby was out for most of the season, and Kurt Thomas, and everybody else. When those guys started to go down, it weighed on Mello and Tyson, 
in their, their minutes. And because of that, they played way more minutes in the second half of the season. They both had serious injury problems between Melo's shoulder and Tyson's neck, was it? Or the, the disc in his back or whatever it was. And so that, that becomes an issue. Um, guys end up playing way more minutes than they should if the guys behind them get hurt. Uh, because you don't want to go too deep in your rotation. So that could be a concern. And, you know, they really don't have a totally proven uh, third point guard, if, if that's the case. And so that that is a concern, I think, uh, is, is if Jennings goes down. So, But, I, you know, I think it's debatable between him and Lance Thomas. Lance Thomas gives him so much versatility defensively. So I think Lance would probably be my first pick there, and then maybe Brandon Jennings being a close second. That's a really interesting answer. Um, first, I'm glad that you brought up Lance because he was on my list of three guys also. Um, he wasn't I, – I didn't really rank him one, two, three or anything, but I, I had Lance, Chris Stapps, and Courtney Lee. Um, Lee because they really don't have any other person that they can rely on to play that off-guard spot in the backcourt. Um, you know, maybe Holiday can – turn into that maybe baker can turn into that maybe they wind up having to turn back to sasha for extended minutes again um but but his versatility and shooting combined with the fact that they really don't have anybody that's reliable behind him um i I feel like makes him sort of non-expendable to them uh lance for you know the reason you listed last year we saw what happened when he went out and he's sort of the key to unlocking any small ball lineup that they want to use like anytime you want to play Carmelo at the four, you need to have another like-sized guy that can guard either a post-threat or somebody on the perimeter so that Melo doesn't have to take the toughest forward matchup. Um, You know, plus Lance, like we've talked about this before, like, he knows where to be and when to be there, and that kind of certainty is really important when you have a team that's based around, uh, you know, high-usage offensive players that aren't necessarily strong defenders, um, like Carmelo and, and Rose. And then with with KP, it's the combination sort of of you know shooting and rim protection. You know they don't have anybody else obviously on the team that replicates that. There are very few guys in the league that replicate that. And you know if he goes down, all of a sudden you're looking at you know a lot of O'Quinn, a lot of Hernan Gomez. Um, you know unless they decide to go small full time. Um, but even that may just be too taxing on guys like Lance and Carmelo um, for them to do it for the entire season. It's right. it's the sort of thing where they can do it uh, for stretches of games, but uh, I'm not sure they could do it all year long. So those were the three for me. But I'm glad you brought up Jennings, too. I didn't think of that, and that makes a ton of sense. Well, I mean, the, the, the baseline problem, I mean, I think in explaining that, the fact that I had two options and very easily could have had at least three. The fact that you had three and in most cases picked totally different people than I did, um, I think it tells you that the biggest problem with this team, aside from a couple other things, I mean, we don't know exactly how their offense is going to look. We don't know what sort of chemistry they have built or how long it will take them to develop it. We don't know exactly what Jeff Hornacek's principles are on defense yet or what sort of defensive coach he'll be. And you and I have both said for a long time now, that that's this organization's biggest issue. Um, you know, I think it, it, what we were getting into just a second ago very clearly tells you that this team has very little depth. Um, and, you know, in an ideal world, all these young new guys would, would be 
you know, good enough to handle the job, but they're also new to the league in a lot of cases, and other guys are just being given roles that they've never held uh, firmly with other teams and, and previous situations. I mean, Justin Holiday all of a sudden becomes really important because he's essentially Courtney Lee's backup. Um, you know, we just said what we said about Jennings. Porzingis becomes really important. We don't even know exactly how they're going to use him, but he's you know he's clearly their second best center option, if not their best center option. And he he kind of like you said with Lance being a key to their small ball offense. I mean, so is Porzingis. You know, if you want to run a five out offense, you essentially have to have him there. And that, you would think, is a huge part of what Hornacek wants to do. It's kind of like a secret weapon. And so if Porzingis can't play, um, you know, that becomes a huge issue. But the, the real thing, I, I went through and looked at it and calculated it out. Six of the Knicks' top seven guys on this roster have had a season-ending injury within the last three years. It's more than any team in the NBA has had, period. And that is just the Knicks, of the Knicks' top seven guys. Six of them have, have been in that scenario over the last three years at one point or another. So it's a, it's a real concern. Um, Bill himself has admitted that it's a risk, um, you know, but that he thinks that they'll get a reward out of it. So it's, it, it's too soon to know, uh, but the fact that they've already had a really disjointed preseason, you know, obviously for different reasons with Rose and his trial uh, being part of that, but it is, uh, it is something to watch, and it probably will be the key to their season one way or the other. Who's the one that hasn't had a season-ending injury? Is that Courtney Lee? Yep, Courtney Lee's the only guy. Right. KP's injury, I guess, technically, season-ending last year. Um, Yep. So I'm going to skip the second question that I had and come back to it because you brought up um, KP and the small ball offense. Um, So who winds up getting more minutes in crunch time throughout the season? Uh, and, And we can do it when both are healthy or just based on health issues, too. We can give answers for both, but is it Lance Thomas or Joe Kim Noah? Uh, That's a tough one. I I mean, I I would be inclined to say that it's Lance. Um, I I think if you factor injuries, it's definitely Lance, um, just (laughs) because Noah's going to miss time at some point. Probably. He always does. Like, even in years where he doesn't miss a lot of time, he misses, like, 10, 15 games or so. Um, And and that sort of eats into the time. And then, yeah, I mean, the split when they're both healthy is going to be interesting. Well, I I mean, the reason I found your question interesting is because it it kind of, to me, the way I heard that question, I know it's not what you asked, it almost sounds like to me, do you expect the Knicks to be ahead or behind in those situations? If you're ahead, then Lance is your guy. If you're behind, then you're probably going to be playing Porzingis to try to play catch-up because you need the offense, and so then Noah wouldn't be on the floor. So that was kind of the way I thought about that question. It may not actually be the case, but Noah, as badly as you'd want his defense out there, you'd probably have to play Porzingis and try to play catch-up, and it gives you the ability to, you know, to score three rather than two that way. Um, and to play a little bit of a quicker game and try to get quicker possessions and quicker scores. So that that actually could end up being a, a pretty big factor in that is, you know, what scenario do you find yourself in at the ends of those games? Um, so if the Knicks are a 30-win team, um, along with the injury concerns you mentioned about Noah, I would expect that Porzingis would probably be playing a lot of those minutes at the five and that Noah's off the floor. Um, but, you know, if they're behind, maybe they need stops and maybe... Um, 
or I'm sorry, if they're ahead, maybe they, they feel more comfortable playing a defensive lineup to kind of make sure that they stay that way. Um, so it, it's a tough question, but I, you know, I would venture to guess that they'll be behind more often, and that maybe they'll need Porzingis' offense as a result of it. So I'd say Lance probably gets uh, some minutes and probably wins that battle just because of what you're saying from the injury thing. But, uh, but that's a tough one. I mean, it's, it kind of depends on what you think the Knicks will end up being this year. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because it was this, sort of the same thing last year, you know, with Lance or Lopez closing games. A you know, lot. I, I think a lot, a lot of the time. And, you know, Noah brings a little bit more versatility offensively than Lopez does, obviously, with his passing and an ability to just be like a fulcrum for ball movement and things like that. But he's not like a threat offensively anymore if you go by anything that's happened in the last like at least three years, um, especially with his finishing even near the basket. He shot something like 42% on layups last season. Um, you know, obviously you could expect him to bounce back, but it's not necessarily something that is definitely going to happen. And, and certainly if they need offense, like the, their best option is going sort of spread pick and roll rather than, you know, high post, low post. And, and that means slotting Lance in as another shooter around sort of KP pick and pops, which is, you know, what you said. But it's also like if the team, I think it sort of depends also on the team that they're playing. Um, if the team they're playing goes small down the stretch, they're almost forced into it also because you don't want, um, you know, Carmelo and KP chasing guys around the perimeter. Um, for both of them, that's not necessarily the best situation. And you're better off having them guard guys that are closer to the basket. Um, you know, especially Carmelo, we've seen over the last few years how much better he is guarding guys inside the arc than chasing them around outside on the perimeter. Um, and Lance being able to do either or, uh, as opposed to Noah, who's always going to be guarding a big guy and like obviously he's capable of switching but he's not going to guard like the three full time like that's just not something that's going to happen so there, there are certain defensive situations where I can see them wanting Lance out there also yeah no it's I mean it, it, it'll be interesting I mean there's some I, I think most of the rotation questions will get ironed out soon and we'll see those things but the closing lineups are always interesting especially if not this year going forward because you know you, you would think within a year or two Porzingis can play center essentially full-time. And once that's the case, it, it kind of raises the question of what sort of role, at least on-court role, does Noah really have and what importance does he have if he's not a closing sort of player. I mean, you already saw, um, you know, the, the discomfort that he had or the, the frustration that he felt with Hoiberg not starting games last year in Chicago. So the idea of not finishing them, you figure, would, would carry a lot of importance with him too. Maybe he's more understanding of it. But he's still being paid eighteen million dollars a year, so it, you know you have to figure that it matters to the guy. Right. Um, the next question is also it's a double uh, sort of rotational question. Um, so first, how long will O'Quinn hold off Hernan Gomez for the backup center job, and which of Kuzminskis? and Baker will wind up playing more of a role off the bench? Huh. Um, okay, well, I, I think O'Quinn will look as if he has the job won, but then he'll do what he always does and have, like, two or three really bad games in a row, which will prompt Hornacek to give Fernand Gomez a chance. 
I mean, I also think Hernan Gomez deserves a chance based on how he looked in preseason. But he can rebound, he can score, and he's got really good moves offensively. Um, O'Quinn, I thought, was having a really bad preseason and then had two really good games to cap the preseason. Um, scored a lot, hit his mid-range jump shots. Um, still was making ill-advised passes, in my opinion, but had a couple of them you know, work out and kind of slip through the hands of a defender. Um has gotten up and down the floor a little bit better than he has, you know, in the past. Um, but he still seems to make a lot of the same mistakes. I mean, his preseason wasn't consistent, which was kind of the problem with him last year. He had really good games. He had really bad games. And, and I attributed a lot of that to Fisher for a while. I don't know how fair that is in hindsight, because I just think at some point, if you're worth playing, you're going to show that you're worth, you're worth playing. Um, O'Quinn got inconsistent minutes. Maybe that was why he was inconsistent. But I still haven't seen much of a shift in terms of the way he plays or what he brings to the table. Um, Hernan Gomez is going to get a chance based on the fact that he's young, based on the fact that he can score and might even be more of a consistent scorer than O'Quinn. And so I think he's going to get chances, especially if O'Quinn continues to be inconsistent. To your other question, um, I'm still trying to get a, a grip and grasp on what Hornacek feels about Kuzminskis because. I actually was surprised he didn't play more in preseason based on how um, consistently he seemed to be able to score. Um, granted, you know, it wasn't always him creating his own offense. Sometimes it was just uh, fast break situations, you know, where he's getting down on the floor and kind of gets an easy look because of that. But he was hitting threes. Uh, he did put the ball on the floor a couple times and score that way. Um, Baker, I think, is kind of an interesting case because I think there's a chance that he could be used as a, a ball handler, you know, maybe, especially with Chase and Randall not on the team, and depending on how Hornacek sees Sasha and his role, you can go back to one of those Boston games, either the Boston game or maybe the Brooklyn game, I can't remember, um, Hornacek was using Baker to bring the ball up the floor at the end of the game. I think it was the Brooklyn game, as he was letting them close that, that win out. Right. Um, he was letting Baker handle the ball, and I mean, some of that was you know, out of necessity, maybe, because, you know, there's no Rose in that game. Uh, Jennings had started, and Chase and Randall was hurt. So you really only had um, really one point guard, one full-time point guard, Jennings, and then I guess you had Sasha. But he was letting Baker handle the ball, and that actually, in hindsight, when you think about it, might have been part of the reason that Baker made the team, is that if they view him as being kind of a backup lead ball handler, um, you know, you can make more of a justification in having him on the team because you don't have that many people on the team that can do that. Um, and Kuzminska certainly is not going to be your lead ball handler. He's, you know, a small forward. So I, I, I could see Baker getting minutes there if they want to use him in the backcourt and use him potentially to handle the ball for a couple plays at a time. Um, you know, he, he would have more of an immediate role. He obviously is a better defender than Kuzminska is. Um, so, so I could see him getting more minutes than Kuzminskis, but um, I, I would like to see Hornacek try to find some time um, for Kuzminskis because he does look like he at least fits the flow of what he wants to do, especially when you consider all the up-tempo pace stuff they want to do. Uh, Kuzminskis seems to fit that way better than Baker, but Baker seems to be more of a natural fit for you know handling the ball at the top of the key. Yeah, um, so where I come down is basically O'Quinn will sort of do what he did last year where he has the job to start the season and it seems like it's going pretty well 
And then, like you said, he has a couple bad games in a row because he's trying to do O'Quinn things and make too much happen by himself. Whether it's, you know, taking every 16-foot jumper that is presented to him or trying to thread those passes through, like, 16 people in the lane as somebody cuts to the basket and there's, like, a negative percentage chance that the pass gets through, but he tries to throw it anyway. I mean, he just has these stretches where... He, he tries to prove that he's like Kyle O'Quinn, very talented basketball player, and it doesn't really work. Like, when he plays within the offense and within himself, then his skill set looks good, and it seems like he can do more. But when he tries to do that more, it doesn't work out well for anybody, and that's what sort of got his minutes yanked around last year, where it was like Kevin Serafin was all of a sudden getting, like, consistent backup center minutes and then when they discovered that Kevin Serafin also shoots every time he touches the ball and has thrown three passes in his life but might be like the worst defensive player in the league they were like all right let's go back to Kyle O'Quinn and then O'Quinn had a few solid games and then he started doing O'Quinn things and it's like it's just like an endless cycle I feel like you know if he does have that stretch early in the season where it doesn't work out and they give Hernan Gomez a chance like if Hernan Gomez plays well he might never give that job back um but he does not play any defense, Hernan Gomez. Like, he doesn't... Almost none. I mean, someone someone tweeted me the other day and said, you know, it was the day that Melo made the comment about Hernan Gomez uh, reminding him of, of Marcus Gasol, which I right. thought was kind of absurd to say, one. But two, fans picked up on that and kind of started parroting what Melo said. And someone said, you know, he could be Marcus Gasol if he just starts to play a little bit more defense. I was like... Um, you do realize that it's like it should be illegal to say that he could be like Marc Gasol if he played a little bit. Like you can't say he, you can be <laughs> like someone if you do a little bit of what that player is best at. Right. Like Marc Gasol is literally defensive player of the year. If he so becomes they, yeah. one of the five best defensive big men in basketball, he could be a little bit like Marc Gasol. Like I'm like no, you, you don't get to say that. Like that is a bizarre way. Like Gasol is a good offensive player, but Hernan Gomez like. I mean, you could argue that he's, in some ways, is a great offensive player because he can pass the ball, he can post, he can shoot jump shots, you know, in terms of what Marcus Gasol can do. And Hernan Gomez, I mean, first of all, we've come into camp and KP is telling the media and Hornacek, I'm surprised at how well he's passing the ball, frankly, because he wasn't that good a passer overseas. Right. So, like, if he's surprised by that, like, that tells you that he's developing that skill, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it tells you that he, like, wasn't that good at it before or is still, like, you know, showing what he might be able to do with that. Like, that's one of the things Marcus Gasol's best right. at. Right, as opposed um, to Marcus Gasol, yeah, who's, like, one of the best passing numbers. big men of his era. Like Right, like, we haven't seen Hernan Gomez shoot jumpers yet. You know, like, he has a, a, a good-looking postgame. He's good with putbacks, like so. Those are good things. Like it's not knocking him at all. I'm impressed with him, but like he's like a burgeoning offensive player who doesn't play any defense. And Gasol is like a good, like well-rounded offensive player who already has kind of maximized all those skills for the most part on offense. And then defensively, again, was like the best defensive player in the, the you know, in the league, arguably the year he won Defense Player of the Year. I mean, that's literally what it means. So, like, it's just weird. People should temper the expectations a little bit. It's also preseason, you know. Like, right. I, I, I'm sure it'll be fine, but I've been really impressed. I think everyone has been, but, you know, it's... Mello didn't... It, it, I found it really odd that Mello came in the one day and said, 
you know, keep the expectations for KP reasonable or say, like, don't blow it out of proportion. You guys are, you know, making it dip more difficult for him by putting all these expectations on him and then saying, this Hernan Gomez kid kind of reminds me of Marcus Gasol. Like, it doesn't really but, compute for and he, me. But he also called him the big baby, so who knows? Yes, he did. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that is the way of kind of giving the full spectrum one, one side versus the other but I mean I don't I also don't think Mello was saying he was Mark Gasol which is a very clear difference so I should be clear with that but I mean it's it was funny to me that like he's he wasn't harping on the media necessarily he was saying the media and the fans with KP's expectations but you know I did find it funny that he was kind of drawing comparisons to Gasol with a, a guy that hasn't played an NBA game yet so. right. that's the thing about this Knicks team like they're full of guys that say stuff like <laughs> you got a lot of of stuff sayers on this team. Derrick Rose says stuff. Oh, yeah. Derrick Rose says stuff. Joakim Noah says stuff. Carmelo says stuff. They're stuff sayers for Brandon Jennings is going to wind up saying stuff too. It's going to be funny. <laughs> um, to to go back to uh, to Baker and Kuzminskis, um, I agree with everything that you said except I do think it just like. Baker seem there seems to be more of a need for Baker's skill set than Kuzminskis's because they don't have any backcourt players that like you know are going to be able to play minutes. Like it's three guys, yep. um, and one of the point guards or both of them is going to get hurt, and he seems to be like the third guy in that group. Um, and if Holiday isn't consistent at that off guard spot, uh, you know maybe he gets a chance before or after Sasha. Like, if Sasha gets a chance, he's not going to be good. So maybe Baker gets a chance before him, maybe he gets a chance after. But it just seems like there's a clearer path to minutes for him as opposed to Kuzminskis, who's like, he sort of has to be the three on offense and the four on defense. And there are already two guys like that in front of him, and they're two of the Knicks' probably four best players uh, in Carmelo and Lance. Um, So it, it seems like unless he's playing with Lance off the bench as, like, a 3-4 tandem or with Carmelo instead of Lance, um, it, it, I'm not sure where his minutes necessarily come from. No, I hear you on that. I So before you get to the next question, I'm going to ask a question that if depending Go on ahead. fans hear this question are going to, like, throttle me when this podcast comes out. <laughs> Am I the only one that is starting to have second questions or kind of doubts about how harsh we were regarding Sasha last year. Um, the reason I'm asking that, I mean, this, again, it's preseason, so I don't want to make too much of it. But Sasha, I mean, he was awful last year for long stretches, for like months. Uh, I, I tweeted several times and mentioned in stories that Fisher was like on, I, I never said Fisher was on thin ice. But that he probably should have been earlier than he was actually um, for playing Sasha the minutes that he was. I mean, he just he opted to start Sasha when Aaron Aflalo was here. Um, but and, and because of that, Sasha had the lowest field goal percentage in the league for a long time, for like at least a month and a half, two months. Um, now he did turn that around later in the season. I think by that point, a lot of people had written him off and were kind of kind of used Sasha's presence in the lineup as a as a rationale for saying Fisher it's justifiable to fire Fisher or that Phil decided to do that um, but what I will say is that you know after people lost interest in the team and basically once the Knicks faded from contention 
Sasha's numbers picked up more than anybody on the team. I mean, Sasha shot... That might say something. What's that? That might say something. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that you talk to around the league, like, disregard anything that happens with these 31 teams after February. Um, And that might be totally fair. I mean, Sasha also, frankly, might have been fighting for his NBA life. But, I mean, the thing is, watching him play, it was never a question of effort with him at all. And even if he improved more than anybody else, that, that that doesn't mean that all of a sudden he should be shooting 50% for a month, which he did in April. He shot 45% in March and shot better than 40% from three in March. He shot better than 50% from three in April. And I guess my question, and, and like I said, maybe people will throttle me for this, is he was basically making and treatment back and he basically been out of the league for a couple years at that point so maybe wasn't totally ready for that and again part of the reason that I think it was totally fair to question why Fisher would start him even if his knowledge of the triangle is better than other people like he probably was not a good choice for that um, to be playing those sorts of minutes and to be starting for a team back when he's just now getting back in the NBA but the fact that maybe he was kind of like back on his game by the end of last season and the fact that I think he finished preseason with the best field goal percentage of any wing player they had. I mean, he, he's legitimately looked good in preseason to me and looked good at the end of last season. And again, I'm, I'm kind of just spitballing here. No, yeah, I, I feel you. I I, think... I'm not necessarily ready to say that he's, he's going to be bad this season. I'm also not ready to say he's going to be good. But, like, I, I think it's not necessarily fair. Like, yeah, Holiday should be the, the number two two guard. But I don't necessarily know that Baker should automatically be in front of Sasha as a two-guard option or even as a point-guard option if he's going to shoot anywhere near as well as he did at the end of last season or this preseason. Right, that's sort of where I was going. I think it's it's fair to bring up. I also think that fans that listen to this will, uh, quote-unquote, throttle you. There's certainly a chance of that. <laughs> um, but I think that if he knocks down his shots like he did last year or like he did in preseason – there's certainly a chance that he winds up being more reliable than any of the other guys they have at the backup guard spots other than Jennings. Like, none of these guys have ever done anything. Like, you don't know what you're going to get from literally any of them. You know, Baker is a rookie. He's never played in the NBA before. Holiday, like, three different teams have thought that he could wind up being a contributor with 3 and D, but he's never made enough shots to stay on the floor to play the kind of defense that it looks like he can play based on his body type. Like, it's entirely possible that he winds up being the most reliable of these guys. I don't know if that's necessarily a good situation for the Knicks. Like, that's a bad spot for them to be in. But he cert- he has an NBA skill if he's making his shots. Uh, obviously, at the start of last season, that was not happening at all. Like, he was missing every single shot that he took. And the Garden was, like, actively groaning when he got the ball, like, on the other side of half court because there was a possibility that he might eventually be in position to shoot maybe and that was the worst thing that could happen but if, if he's making them like you're not going to throw him out there and he doesn't know what he's do- doing you know like he's not a dumb player like he knows where to be what to do offensively defensively it's more uh, the physical limitations defensively like he doesn't have the, the foot speed laterally or in any other direction to stay with quick guards off the dribble or around screens. He gets yeah. run into screens a lot. Like, he's yeah. a very damaging defensive player. 
but he also like knows how to execute the scheme. Like he doesn't necessarily physically have the capability to do it at all times, but it's possible that these other guys just don't know what they're doing at all. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of times that's like worse. Bedford. The funny thing is, like, I agree that he doesn't have the foot speed, and because of that, you see him. He, I mean, he's the one player that when you watch him, his efforts always like last year at least, mm-hmm. his effort was always there. But he he literally would like run into people as he was trying to get around screens, right? Because he's sprinting. Like he's literally the only guy I've ever really seen sprint around on defense. Um, when you look statistically, I think he was either literally the the fastest or second fastest offensive player you know a lot of times because he's coming around screens um but he, he i think he was the fastest defensive player they had to on defense um in terms of just how the miles per hour that he was running on that side of the floor statistically and so he's trying hard but i think sometimes he literally runs in to screens because he's he's running so hard that he doesn't actually have time to change direction or to maneuver around people and so he gets burned pretty badly on that but you know, I, 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 I just think it's worth seeing. I mean, and, and obviously he's not going to have any shortage of chances because of who's in the front office here um, and all the supporters that he has as a result of that. But, I mean, let's be honest. He, he was horrible for most of last season but did still finish the season shooting between 36 and 37% from three. If he could knock down that shot anywhere near as frequently as he did last year and limit his looks to mostly threes in a lineup where he doesn't have to create his own shot I mean he probably is good enough on this team to get some minutes yeah and look that's a somewhat scary thing for a lot of yeah. people um, but that's sort of the reality of the roster like I know it, it seems like they're a much deeper team this year but that's because it looks like there are a lot of options because nobody's necessarily better than anybody else uh, it's a lot of sort of projecting what you think guys could be, and you don't necessarily know uh, about really any of them. Um, so that that could be sort of a uh, coaches like to know what they're getting from somebody a lot of times, and uh, I feel like they do know at least what they're getting from Sasha. You know, a lot of times what you know you're getting isn't all that good, but there are a lot of coaches that will choose certainty over uncertainty. Um, Sounds like Papa John's. <laughs> oh god <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> oh man um, okay so the the fourth question is uh, it's a series of three over unders uh, the first two we don't have to go that in depth on but we can a little bit and the third one is something I imagine we could talk a little bit about um, the first two are so they have finished last in fast break points per game each of the last two years. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk. I think it's last four. Maybe maybe it's not last four. I think it's it might have been more than that. I just maybe know. I knew off the top of my head that it was definitely the last two. Um, yeah, but it's pretty so, bad. Anyway. So there's been a lot of talk about pushing the pace. Um, so I'm setting the over under fast break points per game at 18.5 in the league. So, like, if you're saying over, then they're going to be 19th or worse, under 18th or better. Uh, I'm going to go over. Uh, I'm not really sold on the pace thing. Um, I, I wasn't even aware of, of their pace numbers until I think Rebecca Harlow asked. Um, a sec about it, and she kind of pointed to the fact that it's been 102 possessions or, you know, for 48 minutes. Um, this preseason versus... You know, 96 last, you know, at the end of last season, 
they ranked and you know where they rank now versus where they were last year. Um, and I think they're like top five or top six in preseason this year. Yeah, they were ninth among the NBA teams uh, in preseason pace. In, in preseason, okay, so top ten. Um, and you know, I know that sounds impressive. And you know, Hornacek basically said, you know, yeah, we're it's not that surprising because that's what we're trying to do. It sounds good. It sounds sexy. Um, they were a top ten team in preseason pace last year too, um, and then finished twenty sixth in the league or twenty eighth in the league during the regular season. So Fisher, you know, Fisher made a big point about the drag screens and about pushing the pace and only settling for the triangle if they had to. But the same thing kind of happened last year, you know. And um, so I don't make a whole lot of the preseason pace numbers. I think there is a better chance that those things will stick with Hornacek just because I think that's more of a natural sort of tendency for him than it was for Fisher. Um, You know, I think he's got a better roster to do that with. He's got a a much faster point guard to do that with. He's got two point guards that want to push the ball um, and are more athletic than anything that Fisher had last year. So I do think there's a better chance that they'll play up-tempo, but playing up-tempo doesn't necessarily mean you'll be good on the fast breaks. And, um, you know, Noah... As fun as it is to kind of watch him dribble down the court after he grabs a rebound, he commits a lot of turnovers that way. Um, Rose was not a very good finisher at the rim last year. Some of that obviously dealing with his double vision for a while. But, you know, the Knicks have a couple of guys that are not necessarily great finishers at the rim. You know, Melo is getting a little bit older um, and, you know, does not have the same lift that he's had in the past. So, I mean, I'm curious, even if they play faster, I'm not totally convinced yet that it's going to mean that they're going to be really efficient in all their, you know, in all their fast break efforts. So, I would still put them in the bottom half of the league, and I think right around where your over-under is, is probably like an accurate estimate, maybe just, just slightly better than 20th, you know, maybe out, maybe 19th is worth all that. Yeah, I was ready to go with the over until I saw... Um, John Schumann from NBA.com sent some numbers out yesterday about the correlation of preseason stats to regular season stats, and pace was one of the most closely correlated among any stat from from preseason to regular season. Obviously, the Knicks were an exception last year, um, but but that is something that was very closely correlated among – I think the only one that was more closely correlated was the percentage of your shots that come from three. Like right. every, everything else, pace was the next most closely correlated. That's from. interesting. So the Knicks were just a huge outlier last year with Fisher. That's yeah, um, but it's also like you have to take into account several factors that allowed them to play at a faster pace in the preseason. I think uh, Noah missed a few preseason games. He's one of the slower guys in the team. Uh, Carmelo didn't play nearly as many minutes uh, during the preseason as he will during the regular season. And we've seen over the last four years, like. When he's controlling things, the game is slower. Like, that's just the way that he plays. I, I know he's talked a bunch about wanting to play faster, but when he's the guy at the controls, his teams tend to play slow. Uh, and then so many of the point guard minutes were Jennings. And I, I know Rose plays fast, but he doesn't play nearly as fast as Jennings does. And if Rose gets more minutes than Jennings, which I expect is going to be you know, the, the breakdown at least to start, um, they'll be a little bit slower as well. So I, that's why I set the number there, like because they were, you know, in the top ten in the preseason. But I think they're going to be slower because of a variety of factors um, in the regular season. So you know, I, I come down very, very close. I feel like it's they should be under, like they should be a little bit faster, but they'll probably wind up being slower and they'll go over. 
Um, also, the last two years, the Knicks were last in drives per game from the SportView numbers, uh, setting the over-under in the same place, 18.5. So 19th or worse is over, and 18th or better is under. Mm, I'll put them... I'll put them uh and I think I'm still remembering the way that you have this up. I'll put them under there because I think that they'll probably Jennings drives a pretty decent amount now. Anyway, um, Rose definitely drives. You know, Rose a couple years back it seemed like he was driving more than the Knicks did as a team. You know, by himself. And so Rose clearly will do that. Um, and I also think Porzingis will probably do that a decent amount. Um, he'll have situations where he's getting pick and pop looks, and then teams will try to close out and they'll probably attack the close out with a you know with a dribble or two so I, I could see Porzingis also started to drive more toward the end of last season before Rambus really got a hold of him um, so I think I think that they'll actually be way way improved with that I think even more so than maybe with the pace and I'll put them slightly under with them yeah I come down in the same spot although on KP um, unless his two dribbles wind up going from outside 20 feet to inside 10 feet, Sportview won't count those as drives. I could see him doing that. I could see yeah, him. I mean, he's know. a gigantic human, and he could easily take two dribbles and cover that much space. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the third one was, uh, I'm saying the over-under, the exact same spot, 18.5 in defensive efficiency, which we've talked about several times, has been their biggest long-running issue. They are the worst defensive team in the league since... Jeff Van Gundy left the team back in 2001. Uh, they have finished in the top 10 twice in that, or sorry, the top half of the league, only twice in that time. Average finish of 21st. Um, over under 18.5. Mm, I mean, this is another one where the, the injuries matter a whole lot. I'll, right. I'll put them over, but I, I could very, very easily see them finishing under. I mean, I actually am of the opinion that their their starting five defense is actually not bad at all. Um, right. They might be better defensively than offensively. I, I've said that to Hornacek several times, or not said it to him, but asked questions, kind of asking, do you, do you think your defense could end up being better than your offense? Uh, if, if Noah plays a lot clearly, and they have the two of those guys protecting the yeah. basket like they were one of the best interior defenses in the league last they year second best in the league at protecting the rim last right. year now I think actually they're probably going to take a little bit of a hit there this year Porzingis might be better in that regard than he was last year and should be you know as a second year player but Noah will probably be able to do less than Lopez was in that regard right. Lopez has been a top player. 10 rim pro- uh, uh, Lopez was a top 10 rim protector by the sport view numbers each of the three years that the sport view numbers, or you know, he was slightly outside the top ten one year, but he was second one year and, and ninth another year. He, I think, what you're getting at, he he recently at least has been better at the rim than Noah has defensively. Right. And I think people conflate Noah's being a good defender with the fact that he's also a great rim protector, which I don't know that he is anymore. I think he's decent, but he's better at with his mobility and being right. able to kind of go out and defend guys, you know, he's closer to what we saw with Tyson. You remember a couple years ago, Tyson made essentially a game-sealing block on Kyrie Irving at the three-point line in Cleveland. Those are the sorts of plays that every now and then you'll expect Noah to make, whereas Lopez could not do that, and that was his flaw, is that big men, and especially on switches, but also big men, 
think about the, the game against Nick Vucevic and, and guys like that, and, you know, Valanciunas, those sorts of guys can kind of eat him alive, um, bringing him outside the paint if, if they had a, a working jump shot. That Lopez really wasn't in position to really stop them. And so that's where Noah will come in handy, but it doesn't necessarily help as much at the rim. You know, he can switch out and, and guard further out, but at the rim, he's not going to be as effective as Lopez. Not yeah. necessarily. They may so, be able yeah. to stop guys from getting to the rim quite as much just because Noah can can push penetration to the right spots. Like, that's his best defensive skill yep. is, like, not necessarily completely stopping a drive, but just pushing it to the right spot so that shot is like two or three feet outside the paint rather than at the basket. Or, right. you know, that, that jumper is at the elbow rather than, you know, a floater in the middle of the paint or something right. like that. Um, and, so, and that's something that should really help. So, so anyway, I mean, Noah, Noah is a good defender by almost anyone's, you know, if he's healthy, he's a, he's a good defender. Um, that's not my question. My, my question is more how does the difference between his sort of defense and Lopez's, how does that change Porzingis' role and does it kind of burden him more? Right. Um, how does it change the rebounding responsibility if Noah's going to be out on the perimeter to some extent? But my, my bigger thing is that I think their starting five could be really good defensively if Melo's committed. I think Melo is kind of the X factor there because you, you really have three guys that should be plus defenders. You've got Lee, You've got Porzingis and you've got Noah. Melo, if he's playing defense on a committed level, you could potentially have four guys at times that are at least average, if not better than average defenders on a given play. Rose, I don't really think anyone's ever going to say Rose is a good defender. Right, but you Maybe. know what? Most point guards aren't good defenders. Like, if you right. get plus defense or or average defense at the other four spots, you're in a good sh- you're in good shape. Totally. And I mean, frankly, if you Rose and Noah could be really really big negatives. And so that that's my only thing is that you really need Melo to be committed to kind of say that this is going to be a good defense. But if he's not and if Rose isn't either, it's it might be asking too much of the other three guys to cover for for those two if they're going to be really glaringly bad. But anyway, since those guys should be playing the vast majority of the minutes if they're healthy and Melo is committed, maybe because he feels rejuvenated playing with better teammates or if you know, or if just like last year it seemed like he came in on a mission to like prove he, he basically told me I wanted I can't lead by example just by scoring, I have to play defense too, or at least try to play defense. And so if he comes in with that mindset and is you know, that he's not gonna let his guy get twenty, twenty five a night and that he you know, that he's gonna try to stay on his guy and, you know, um, chase down shooters as opposed to just letting them get open jumpers. They they could be, you know, they're they're starting five at least while they're out on the court. They could potentially be a top 12, 13 defense with their starting five. Again, I don't know what to expect with their bench, and I also don't know who is going to be anchoring their defense. Is, is Hornacek going to do what Fisher did that I thought was really effective by switching Porzingis and Noah essentially in for one another and kind of sub them in and out for each other. If he does that and gets enough wing defense from guys like Lance and Holiday, their bench defense could potentially be pretty decent too. But I, I'm not totally sold on the, the the reserves yet just because I don't exactly know how Hornacek plans to anchor that second line. But I, you know, I think they could definitely be a decent defensive team if they're healthy and if Bello is committed defensively. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a defense that has a hugely high ceiling. Like, I can't see them breaking into the top ten no, at all. Either. 
But I do feel like, you know, the best they could do is probably somewhere around like 12 or 13, like you said. And I feel like that starting group should be able to get there. And if they are, like if the if the foursome of Lee, Carmelo, Porzingis, and Noah, if they're a top half of the league defense when those four guys play together, that bodes really well for them, I think. They're, in my opinion, they're a playoff team if they can do that. You know, the irony with what you and I are saying there is that Hornacek is way more concerned with their defense than he is with their offense. And, uh, you know, just like we were both saying, I, I actually think their defense, if things hold up health-wise, at least the starting five could be really, really good, at least by Knicks standards in terms of how bad they've been in the past. But Hornacek keeps saying that he needs, you know, he even the last day before he made cuts was saying, and we need guys that can play multiple positions to defend multiple positions because we're really not sure what we're going to get on that end of the floor yet. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the starting five is is very capable. At least that unit is capable of being a top half of the league unit. Um, it's more a question to me of what the bench is going to look like. But I think they could be fine defensively. It's uh, it's interesting that for a team whose like most recent great and beloved team was known for being the best defensive team in the league and some of the best defensive teams ever and sort of like ugly-ass offense. Um, they've been so offense-focused basically since that team broke up organizationally. Um, and even with this most recent era, like everything you hear about this entire team is the triangle on the offense and how much I'm going to run the triangle, how much I'm going to run pick and roll. And there's really not been really any talk about their defense when it's clearly the most important issue with the team. So it, it is good to know at least that Hornacek has been saying that that's the thing that he's more concerned with, although it's not necessarily good that he is more concerned uh, with the defense, which means he doesn't think it's been uh, as good or as reliable as the offense. Um, Last question, which I think is the one that's sort of on everybody's mind, uh, what are they going to get out of the point guard spot? Um, Biggest question mark, obviously, we have no idea actually what to expect from Rose um, his last four years are all over the map health-wise, missed a ton of games. Um, his play has been almost uniformly bad with the exception of the post-All-Star break stretch of last year, which people have sort of grabbed hold onto and said that he's back and all he needs is a change of scenery. You know, if you break down that post-All-Star game, like he was good for 14 games after the All-Star game, and then really, really bad for the last seven games again. Um, it feels like the sort of thing where if you know your big hope is that a guy starts suddenly playing like he played four years ago, that's you know you're putting too much of your eggs in the hope basket. Um, you know, then behind him, Jennings injury issues as well. Never the most efficient player to begin with. Uh, certainly a fun one and one that has sort of explosions on a night to night basis possibly but there's not a lot of stuff you can rely on uh getting consistently at that position so it's it's just a massive question mark i mean what do you think that they're going to get uh you know what's i guess like what's your best case worst case most likely case for those guys um i mean maybe this is unfair but i mean i, I think it's rooted in a couple of years of research or not research, but a couple of years of statistics. Um, I, I I wouldn't be shocked if they're among the the least efficient 
point guard tandems or, you know, in terms of depth charts and stuff like that. Um, you know, Jennings, it's, it's insane to me. Like, I, I was tweeting this the other night. I totally get how and why fans are reaching this conclusion, even if I don't agree with it. This idea that Jennings, you know, should be their starting point guard, even if Rose is healthy, in a preseason where he shot 25% for the most part. I mean, he <laughs> shot 28%. And again, it's preseason, so I understand it doesn't really matter, but it's just really, it's, it's kind of like bizarro land and the twilight zone when you think about the fact that people are, like, going out of their way to say that a guy that shot less than 30% should be starting over a former MVP that is 28 years old right now. Um, but, you know, the, the game flows with Jennings in there. Um, he keeps the defense on their toes. He's very much a risk taker. Um, but that's that kind of speaks to the inconsistency. And um, So, you know, he is an efficient player when he's shooting from threes. That's kind of been his saving grace on some level in the NBA is that I think he shot less than 40% for his career, but he's an average or above average three-point shooter. And so you can use that to justify some of his inefficiency, but not all of it. And it hurts his case when he throws the ball out of bounds or when he you know, throws the ball behind his back and then there's no one there. Um, it's fine to be flashy, but not when you're making mistakes and not when you're already inefficient as a shooter. Um, so, you know, I, I do like the fit with him in the second unit, particularly if Hornacek is going to play him with Porzingis in that second unit. I think he could Which it sounds like he's going to do. He mentioned the other night during that last uh, preseason game that he took KP out a few minutes later than he's going to try to do during the regular season. So if he takes him out like six minutes or so into the first quarter, he can get in some run with the second unit after that. Yeah, and if he does that, it's going to help Jennings immensely because he does force the issue so much that you know defenses pay attention to him. And, you know, it's going to leave backdoor opportunities or, you know, uh, alley-oop opportunities for Porzingis. So that will help. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, Jennings, if he shoots 20% better than he shot 20 percentage points better, I mean, that would be slightly above average. I think he'd be be up around 47 48%, which is still not fantastic. But it's, you know, for a point guard, it's not bad at all. Uh, for him, it would be like unprecedented for him to shoot that well. So right. we're we're not expecting that. Uh, you know, I'm expecting him to be relatively inefficient. I'm expecting him to turn the ball over quite a bit, even if he's fun to watch. And Rose, I mean, even if he is playing the way he did in the second half, he's still not going to be some super super efficient player. He's never really been that. Um, he's never been a big big foul drawer. Um, you know, at best, what you're hoping is that these guys facilitate the offense in a way to where they're not beholden to the triangle, that they loosen the, you know, the kind of the chains and shackles that have been on the offense for years, that they loosen that because they play with more of a free spirit and that they can, they're athletic enough to get other guys open without having to run, you know, a very, very static offense. And so that, that's the best case scenario is that they shoot decently and are not totally inefficient and that they can get you out in the fast breaks, that they can create other shots for other people. Um, that's your hope, and um, you know how that's going to work, whether the offense is going to be good enough around them to kind of overcome their inefficiency. I think that Porzingis could have a huge year playing with these guys. So that's the upside of it. I think particularly with Rose, if you look at the way Rose kind of had synergy with Gasol, uh, Porzingis should be a more efficient, or not more efficient, but kind of a more rangy, athletic version of what Gasol is offensively. Um, 
not quite the mid-range shooter, but has probably a little bit more range than Powell does. Um, should be able to jump over the top of some people that aren't ready for him to come down the lane and dunk on them. Um, you know, if they're not playing the pick and roll correctly, he's so athletic. Uh, it's going to create a lot of opportunities for Rose and Jennings to facilitate, but I don't expect them to be way more efficient than they have been in the past, and that could be a problem too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think Jennings makes sense in concept, um, especially if they wind up playing him with Porzingis a lot. I think that could be a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, Rose, so much of what people are projecting about this season is tied up in, like, Derrick Rose getting back to being Derrick Rose. Like, the next guy that is an all-star level player and then for four years is alternately injured and ineffective and then suddenly snaps back to being an all-star level player again, like, the next guy that does that will be the first guy to do it. Um, It's just, it's not something that has really ever happened, at least in the 29 years of NBA that I've been watching. Um, Anybody expecting that, I think, is expecting way too much. Like, would it be a great surprise for them? Absolutely. But it's just, you know, in all likelihood not going to happen. Um, I think sort of the best they could hope for is, again, like, what you got post-All-Star break last year, which was like, Decent scoring, uh, decent passing, you know, moderate efficiency scoring. I think he shot like 46% from the field and like 34% from three or something like that. That would be great. You know, that's basically what he did uh, when he was the MVP, but obviously on, you know, bigger usage and in a bigger role and got to the free throw line more and all this stuff. But the the defense, I think, um, there's almost no chance that comes back. He just, I know they keep saying that he's moving better than he ever has. He looks like old Derrick Rose. Look, I'm not comparing myself to Derrick Rose athletically, but I've had two knee surgeries too. It's not possible to move the same way you did before knee surgery. You just can't, uh, especially when you're getting, uh, you know, re- repairs, removals, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's too much. Like it just it affects your knee in so many different ways. You can't have the same mobility within it. Um, you know, and we've seen over these last few years, he doesn't move the same way offensively, defensively. I know that they're they have high hopes. You know, all these guys that worked out with them and stuff, but it's just it's not possible to move the same way that you did. I, there's there's no other way to say it. Like if you had had knee surgery too, you would know. Um, but look, I, I think there's certainly a chance that he plays pretty well. Um, I don't think there's any chance really that he gets back to being the rose that people uh, still think he is. But I mean, to me, that's that's why it's it's so high variance. Like there are so many different outcomes that could happen here. Like he could be hurt the entire season. Who knows? Uh, that's, that's certainly happened over the last few years. He could play a bunch and just be okay. He could play a bunch and be alternately like great and terrible. Like you really have absolutely no idea what you're getting from him. Like Jennings, I feel like is the less high variance player. Which for a player whose like entire game is defined by variance is right, crazy. That's what yeah, it's it's really weird stuff, but that's you know the the two of them sort of represent the entire team. Like I've said it throughout the offseason, it's the highest variance team in the league. Like they've made so many bets on guys that could flip one way or the other. Some of them are going to hit, some of them are going to whiff hard, and some of them are going to fall down somewhere in between. And it's just a matter of which way more of them flip is is going to determine you know like whether they're in the mix for a playoff spot or whether they're in the mix for a high lottery pick. Yeah, I'm still kind of in, in awe that they made a trade for him. Aside from 
you know, the, the other stuff that would have been told at this point is totally fair to question why they pulled the trigger on it, but um, that they made a trade for him just based on, you know, the direction it seemed like they were going in as a team. I mean, I had several people from their front office tell me we're essentially not worried about a point guard, that we're right. not going to chase a point guard in free agency. And I mean, that was true. That ended up being true. They did not chase one in free agency, but because they couldn't and didn't want to, they made a contingency plan to basically go after an impact-making point guard, um, you know, who, even if he was expensive, someone that was not really going to add to their salary cap that they already had. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating to me the way that they've chosen to handle it. It, it could pay off in a big way. I mean, I don't... But even if it does, I just... I don't even see what sort of scenario it would take for them to want to go long-term with Rose. Right. The uh, payoff, like I've mentioned this before, the payoff is like one year at most. Like the best-case I mean, scenario. Yeah, I mean, the payoff, I think... It, it becomes easier to kind of figure out after the fact if you make the playoffs. They've, they've gone a long time without making the playoffs now. And not only that, but they've gone a long time without making the playoffs despite having Carmelo Anthony on the roster, which... You have a player of his caliber on the roster, you look at it a couple ways. One, you should be making it to the playoffs with him on the roster. You know, some people would flip it the other way and say um, he should be carrying them to the playoffs, and it's his fault they're not there. But, you know, there's pressure on them. Carmelo has put pressure on them. And so now you add another big name to that mix. Granted, not in the same stratosphere that he was a few years ago, but, you know, if they make the playoffs, even if they don't bring him back, you. Maybe that's a way of being able to say that, you know, we knew what we were doing. It was worth it to give up, you know, Lopez and Grant to get back to the playoffs and getting Rose's contributions. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it, but it, uh, it's definitely like a weird scenario because I, I know I've seen fans tweet that even if Rose puts up like MVP caliber numbers, you know, let's I've say said this multiple work. times. Like yeah. I'm on that train too. Like you can't, you can't really. Who wants to give them a long-term contract yeah. at this point? Uh, I mean, again, aside from all the other stuff that's not basketball-related, which, you know, frankly, he's essentially been vindicated of for the most part, just the just the health stuff alone, he, he's in his prime, technically, you know, in terms of how old he is, but there's no way a year or two of, like, a clean bill of health kind of excuses the fact that he, he was hurt for four or five years. I mean, it's yeah. with serious knee issues the, uh, that don't... They don't improve. I mean, like, right. at some point, it's going to be, like, bone-on-bone bone sort of stuff, like what we saw with Brandon Roy. So it's, it just it just sucks because it's, it's not – even if it works out, I don't know that people are going to be willing to sign up for, like, four more years of this at a big number. If he is healthy, you have to assume that someone will throw big money at him for at least the next year or two because he still has a really big name around the league. He's still – more athletic than the average point guard. He can still do certain things that other people can't. What I want to see this year, I would just love to see the guy dunk on a couple people. Um, <laughs> it it, it, it sucked watching how athletic he used to be and occasionally watching highlights of the guy. You know, I'm from Chicago. I watched the Bulls more than any team with the exception of the Knicks, you know, over the last few years. You know, if for no other reason to have conversations with my friends about how they're playing and be able to have those sorts of talks with my friends about what they're doing and how certain guys look. But it, it, it just sucks the last couple of years not... I mean, he even when he's been open enough to do it, he just doesn't dunk, I assume, to preserve his legs or to not get hurt. And um, it would be great to see if he is back once and for all in terms of being totally over his injuries, to see him kind of loosen that part of the way he thinks just to, you know, 
the fans would love it too, but I would love to see him do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that briefly before making the last point, and then i let you go. So he has not really necessarily had problems getting to his spots on the floor the same way he used to uh, over these last few years. The problem he's had is when he gets to those spots, he doesn't have the you know uber athleticism that he used to to be able to go up and around and over and through people in the way he used to like he's a contortionist when he gets to the rim not necessarily someone that will like absorb contact take it and finish through like he tries to you know go around guys uh you know well he's i think i don't know if he said it or if it's something that i heard someone else say that he said that he because he played growing up in chicago and i guess the reputation in chicago being that he they didn't really they weren't willing to call fouls on the street courts, basically. That makes sense. And so he basically doesn't... He, he Because of like the way he was raised and the way he grew up playing, that like he didn't want to get fouled because he knew he wasn't going to get the foul call anyway. So he tried to go around people instead of going through them. Right, that and, and that ability has been you know diminished over these last few years. Um, so it's right. not... You know, like he can get to his spots, he can't do the finishes anymore, and that's why he missed like a ton of layups over these last few years, and is not necessarily a great finisher in the paint anymore. Um, to go back to your point about you know keeping him long term, uh, this is something I said on the last podcast, and it's how we'll close here. Um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The Knicks have paid late twenties former stars with knee problems, big money continually over the course of you know my life uh they did it with alan houston they did it with antonio mcdice they did it with amari stoudemire if they do it with derrick rose too they don't know what they're doing and that nothing has changed since forever um that's just that's you know personal opinion but I, i just i can't just see any scenario where there's a legitimate justification for doing it like even if he comes back and he's the mvp like we, we've seen that, that level of performance from guys before, and it all goes away. Um, it, ha- it happens. happens. You have to imagine the Knicks. Well, you no, know, you don't have to imagine. I was going to say, you have to imagine that the Knicks would lose out on a bidding war because you would hope they have the restraint to say, great, Derek, we're, we're thrilled. Zero percent chance that would happen. That they give them a, a <laughs> one-year contract and a max money for maybe one year. And then, you know, figure go almost year by year. But Derrick Rose would have no interest in doing that. Derrick right. Rose has been talking about free agency next year for the last two years. I mean, not the last two years, but he mentioned it two years ago in a question that had almost nothing to do with that. Right. Um, he was asked about how he felt going into the season last year and responded by saying, you know, because this was last year was the start of this money looking bigger. Remember the Jody Meeks contract came in and everyone's like, Holy hell! Like, the the first deal was uh, the first deal of free agency was Al Farouk Aminu, and people flipped out. And then it was right. like, oh yeah, that was nothing. Right. Oh, uh, clearly it was nothing. And you know, especially with Mozgov and everything, everyone else this year, and uh, you know, Evan Turner, a guy that, that Derek Rose, you know, came up with in the same sort of area, and the, the, the money. So I mean, it, it it's fascinating now to think that you know Derek Rose very clearly wants a payday. And, and should want one based on right. his health three. He should be looking for the, the most sound contract he can get for the longest amount of time he can get. Um, so a one-year deal you would think would absolutely not fly with him, especially if he's coming off a good season, especially when you really think about it where he's last year, you know, Phil has been really quick to say that Noah's injury last year 
was a freak injury. It was a shoulder thing. Shoulder popped out of place. I mean, if that's the way you feel about that, you absolutely better believe that Derrick Rose is going to argue that his injury last year was totally freak as well, where he got hit in the eye socket, basically, and Mm -hmm. had a fractured orbital bone. And so, I mean, we're, we're at this point, by next year, we're almost three years removed from Derrick Rose's most recent knee injury. And so he's going to argue that he's fully healthy and that he's going to be okay for the rest of his career. And he's going to take a long-term contract. He's not going to agree to a short contract, even if it is for max money. He would much rather take a long-term deal for less money than that, Um, especially if he's coming off like an MVP caliber year, which won't happen. But even if he's coming off just a good year, borderline all-star year, He's gonna want real money, and um, you know the Knicks. If and they, and if totally they, justified in wanting it. Like it's prob- it's almost definitely his last chance to get a big deal. I would not blame him a bit. But, and you know the Knicks. It, it, we're we're talking hypotheticals. It, right. I don't even know that it's totally reasonable to think that the Knicks wouldn't. You know that the Knicks wouldn't give him. Oh, they would a hundred percent do it. They would probably give him the long term deal. If this is the Knicks we're talking about. If, yeah, the, so if we'll a shiny see. object comes in front of their eyes and sh- and shines. They're gonna give that shiny object a ton of money. Sometimes they prove us wrong, um, and maybe, maybe they, you know, they haven't given up a single pick since Phil took over. He's tried to protect, for the most part, the long-term flexibility. I, I thought the Noah deal was bad in that regard, um, at least in terms of you know the, the length and for how much money they went with him. But for the most part, they have preserved some element of flexibility. Yeah. So I would if, uh, if if Rose gets an arenas rule contract offer from somebody else, they might run around the gym in Las Vegas trying to avoid the offer sheet and then <laughs> it's possible that they won't pay the shiny object in front of them. <laughs> we'll see. We'll I, see. Um, yeah. I guess it's too so early to speculate. It definitely is, but it's not too early to start looking forward to tomorrow night and the season opener and the rest of the season. And um Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with me. really appreciate it. Um, you can find Chris at The Wall Street Journal, and you can find him on Twitter at HerringWSJ. That's H-E-R-R-I-N-G-W-S-J. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J-A-Dubin5 and the podcast at LockedOnKnicks. I will be back tomorrow with Chris Manning, the host of Locked On Cavaliers, doing a season opener preview, and then on Wednesday wrapping up whatever happens in that season opener. Chris, thank you again so much, man. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, folks.